0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're gonna talk about rare
1: diseases, uh, rare disorders. You know, there's 7,000 rare disorders that affects three, probably 30 million Americans. And in fact, you add them all up and that's more than all the people affected by cancer, by AIDS. And even though there's 7,000, only about uh, half of those have a known cause. Most of them are genetic. And the majority of patients who are affected are children. About half of those, maybe a little less than half, will die before the age of five. So, I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, that tugs at your heart. And there are probably hundreds or thousands more of these that are going to be discovered in the next, let's say, five to ten years because of the real advances in technology. So we're going to be looking at a, a new world where we have to confront a lot of different perspectives. And I guess one of the questions is, what does that bring up for us? How will we deal with the rare disease that we already have? And how will we begin to deal with the new ones? And so with that as sort of a backdrop, I wanted to tell you that what I do is, uh, I'm a basic scientist, so I believe that we can understand the world best if we try to take a scientific approach and we probe and we do experiments and we ask questions and we always look for facts, never alternative facts. Our work is never done. Science goes on because we keep refining everything that we see, everything that we do, we get new information, we incorporate it. So I don't see another way for me to go about this, but what I am is I study this area uh, called glycobiology.
2: What's the matter, Sal? Not up on your glycobiology.
1: <laughs> he actually said that. He played a glycobiologist. And so, you know, we have an immediate kinship. But 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 the thing is don't, don't feel lost if you don't know much about glycobiology because most physicians, most basic scientists don't know much about it either because it's one of those fields that because it's complicated and maybe missed all of the technological revolution, there are not a lot of people who are trained in it. So it's one of the sort of the dark matters of, of the universe within biology. There's probably, well, I suppose several hundred... Uh, Glycobiologist. So what is that all about? Well, it's about sugars. And sugars, carbohydrates, not the, not the kind you eat and digest and get energy from. Those we know pretty well. We hear a lot about that. But these are sugars that, step by step, assemble into very complicated molecules. Sugars are strung together one after another. And, in fact, they're so uh, abundant that they are really the most abundant molecules on the earth. So if you think of seaweed, if you think of trees, if you think of the Amazon forest, I mean, let's get real. The glycosphere is all of that. Cellulose. Oh, and don't forget, insects. Chitin is a polysaccharide. It means it's a, a, a set of sugars pulled together. So the great mass of biomass on earth is composed of sugars. And you have to put those things together in the right order, in the right way, in the right part of a cell. This is a complicated task. So I first studied, uh, began to get interested in glycobiology by studying um, carbohydrates that were involved in a slime mold. And I know that sounds like the worst words in the English language, you put slime and mold together, you get slime mold. But this is when I came to UCSD as a graduate student in 1969, and I worked with Bill Loomis in the biology department, and he just sadly passed away just a couple of months ago. But he introduced me to this organism which was just unbelievable. It is this single-celled amoeba that crawls around in the soil, and after it eats everything it can, it runs out of food, and it's stuck. What's it going to do? It's going to do the slime mold shuffle. It's going to get together with 100,000 of its friends and go through this complicated morphogenesis, meaning they change shapes, and they covered themselves in slime. And start in the lower right corner and follow those numbers, 10, 12, 14. You can see that it goes into this thing called a fruiting body at the end, and that there are a bunch of dormant spores sitting on top of this stalk, and now they hope to get scattered into fresh dirt where they can eat more bacteria. So, this is, this is really quite amazing. And in fact, this thing called the slug, each of those little red dots, is actually a cell. And they can see light, they can feel heat, they can move in those directions. Amazing organism. So, a lot of this was about me studying the slime. Okay, so you're saying, what's this got to do with rare diseases, though? You know, I mean, you want slime. Well, I found out by studying these guys that they have a very special sugar that they make. Mano-6-phosphate. What was that? Mano-6-phosphate. The man, the man said mano-6-phosphate. What is that? Well, that's a special sugar that's attached to some proteins, and you find those in the slime mold and there's some mutants of uh, slime molds that don't have enough mannose 6 phosphate and so that complicated 24 hour cycle they go through where they're going through their morphogenesis it doesn't work you get stubby little fruiting bodies you don't get them to behave normally but guess what there are people who are deficient in mannose 6 phosphate also they don't put mannose 6 phosphate on some of the proteins. And the consequences are that the children come down with a thing called eye cell disease. It's an inherited disorder, autosomal recessive, if that that means anything. They're short. They have terrible bone problems. They get a lot of infections. They're mentally uh, deficient. And all these kids will die by the age of seven. And so it's not only... Slime molds that have mutations in putting together these sugar chains, um, but also people have mutations in these, and as I said, the you know glycans that 's what we call these sugar chains they 're built up a sugar at a time, and in our lab what, what we 've done is move from studying slime molds we move to to start to study human beings, and then we can go into it later why I made that decision but we found that there were patients who actually had deficiencies in some of the ability to add these sugars and build their sugar chains upright. And so what do we do? Well, we look for those opportunities where we can find um, patients who may have in some way a a glycosylation deficiency, and maybe they don't make strong bones. They are are, uh, developmentally disabled. They have sometimes gastrointestinal problems. Sometimes they have infections. Well, we can get clues as to whether they may have altered glycosylation. And then we take cells from kids that may have these disorders, and then we try to go in and see if we can find the cause of their disease. Can we find the mutations? Can we validate them? Remember, we've got to look for facts. We can't just say, yeah, I'll, I'll bet it's something like that. We've got to get specific. Because if you're a parent, you want to know what's wrong with my kid. Was, was it my fault? Was, was it my wife's? I mean, think about all these things. All the parents who have, who have kids with rare disorders, many of them have to go through this all the time. So I view our position as maybe being able to help out and do some of that. And actually, we've even been able to not only discover um, Some of these disorders, we've actually been able to treat some of them. And one of them is this little boy right here. And he had, his name is Max, by the way. We met Max. It was a great time. Um, He had protein losing enteropathy, which means he's losing proteins through his intestine. Uh, He has hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. So there is a connection to some of the sugars. And a coagulopathy, which means his proteins, his his clotting system, doesn't work well. So we were trying to figure out what that might be due to. And we figured out that he was deficient in something. You know what that was? Manos-6-phosphate. Manos-6-phosphate. And we gave this kid manos, and he got better. I didn't believe it. In fact, we went to, to Germany to visit this kid. And my my first uh, thought was, you've got to take this kid off Manos if he actually got better, because I can't believe it was Manos. And you can imagine what his doctor told me. Nein <laughs> You know, there was no way this kid who had been sick all his life was going to come off Manos just so I could get my science jollies. He, that was exactly the right thing to say. But we needed to figure out, how does this work? Well, we went down to the beer garden after visiting Max and talked with my colleagues. I remember an experiment that we did, and we had a hypothesis. We figured out what might be the deficiency. And it turns out that this, we're, this is as complex as it's going to get here. So glucose, that's the sugar you know Uh, is involved with uh, metabolism. So you eat things, you metabolize glucose, and it gets converted to a molecule called fructose 6-phosphate. It gives you metabolic energy. But you know what? Some of that can also be converted to mannose 6-phosphate. Not very much of it, just a little tiny bit. But that's the major source of mannose that goes into glycoproteins. And that was the enzyme that was deficient in Max. So when we gave him mannose, he was partially blocked here, and he was able to take in mannose from his bloodstream and correct his deficient glycoproteins. And you say, well, is this FDA approved? Well, it's, it's a common sugar. Uh, it's not something you normally uh, would get in a diet, but we were able to get permission from the FDA to run clinical trials, quote-unquote, in my lab. Um, this was all done on the up-and-up. And, up. and uh, we sat around drinking mannose for two weekends and looking how much went into our blood, how quickly it was cleared out. And it was just two weeks after, or two days after we finished those couple of weekend experiments that Max's doctor called and said, I think we're going to lose him. He's lost 40 pints of blood. The kid's going down. We'll try anything. We saw you had a paper about something about mannos. Do you have any idea how much mannose to give this kid? I said, yeah, give him this much this often and see what happens. And it worked. And it was the most amazing thing. So that sort of started us very fervently on, on the course to try to find more deficiencies in glycosylation. And if you look at how this has increased, remember we were talking about eye cell disease It was first solved back in 1981. That's when we figured out what was going on in those kids. Max comes along in 1997, and then now the human genome was sequenced by Francis Collins uh, as as one of the people, and, and Craig Venter, local resident here, as the other. And so look what's happened in that time. These are just different uh, uh, flavors of glycosylation. But we have now 125 diseases. We got one yesterday. So there's this explosion of all of these, all of these disorders. And remember I said 7,000, only half we know the cause of. That kind of increase is going to continue. And we've still got more glycosylation disorders to find out. And what do we do? Well, we know that there's all this interaction between basic scientists and physicians. You know, they're supposed to cross feed each other. But in the case of glycobiology, little orphan glycobiology, there wasn't much to communicate. There wasn't much communication going on. So we actually were able to be in contact with the families, many of the families who were desperate to find out what's wrong with my child, what can we do to help out, where are you going to call? Well, you actually had to go to the basic scientist because we are an orphan field working now with orphan diseases. And as I say to my colleagues, uh, our lab or your lab, if you get involved in this, you're only a click away because everybody, if they find out they have a suspicion of a disease, you're going to be on the hit list for being called and saying, Dr. Scientist, what can you tell me about what might be wrong with my child? And so what we've done is we feel an obligation to to do some of this. We don't think that there's enough contact between basic scientists and families who are suffering. And where we have the opportunity, we can bring them together. And so what we've actually done is over the last several years, we've had uh, family meetings... and the parents and the glycobiologists who come to hear other scientists do glycospeak to meet with physicians to interact and I can tell you scientists who are most of the time in the lab they are completely transformed when they get in the room and they sit down and see their work relevant to a patient that makes a world of difference now They know their work counts for something, and they can see it right in front of them. And so we have this opportunity. This is the last uh, family meeting that we did here in town just just a little bit uh, under a year ago. And these are children and adults that have all come together in San Diego to learn about glycosylation disorders, to try to figure out how they can take care of their kids Scientists want to find out how they can help the kids. Physicians want to be up on the latest research. It's a great little mixing pool. And we're going to have another one on February 23rd. It's not focused on CDGs, these glycosylation disorders, but rather on another disorder. We're going to have that where families, for the first time, 24th, uh, our families are coming together with scientists, first time this ever happened that's a model going forward and it's all because of this interaction so we have to deal with these rare disorders so there's a lot of new ones that are going to uh, await discovery only a, a few really have treatments and since there's 30 million people in the country that's 10% chances are pretty good you know somebody with a rare disorder maybe you have one yourself maybe in your family How are we going to manage this? We've got limited resources. How do we we take care of all these people? So is there any financial incentive to find more treatments, more ways to understand it? Certainly basic scientists want to understand it and get their grants funded. That's one aspect, but that's only part of it. Because patients and families are becoming much stronger advocates for themselves and people who have similar disorders. That brings up the question, how do you balance the cautiousness of the FDA? And they need to be cautious. How do you balance that with patients and families trying to find out what's wrong with my kid? How are we gonna treat that? So big questions. What are the ethical and uh, socioeconomic choices for therapies, even though there's not many Sometimes you get ones where there's enough interest. And there's several choices. How do you make those? Who makes them? Certainly the patients. But maybe they don't have the ability to go choose everything they'd like. So I believe that scientists benefit from studying rare disorders, be they in slime molds or in people. So what do we owe back in return? And... I think it's substantial, but I think the payoff is really great. So thank you.
3: One of the things that um, I feel we have an ethical obligation to do in these programs is to humanize science. So could you sort of relay what got you into science and what drew you into this field? Why are you doing this? When did you decide it was because you wanted a Nobel Prize? What was? That?
2: <laughs> well, that
1: that was, that was never a goal. Um, I got into science because I had a really, really dynamic and exciting high school biology chemistry teacher, uh, and that made all the difference in my life. I can't. Uh, I can't say enough about how important that was, but I grew up in a small uh, blue-collar town in Indiana. My dad was a railroader. My mom stayed home with my sister, who was disabled. And so I always had uh, a soft spot, if you will, for um, people with disabilities. I mean, that was my life. That was my home. And, um, and, and so when opportunities came along to do some of this stuff, um, it felt quite natural.
3: Scientifically, All of us would automatically say, well, if you want to know if it's the manos that's making him better, we stop the manos and see what happens. Um, I, I know that you found a way around that question in this case, but can you reflect on the problem that when you're dealing with a disorder that doesn't have thousands of patients where you can do some sort of randomized trial, it's often an N of one. How does that change, if at all, our obligation to protect the individual or... To learn something? Um,
1: well, I think we do have an obligation. and Of course, you know, again, I'm coming at this not as a physician who's had a, appropriate and proper training, but as a scientist. So that was my first reaction. And I got brought up by the short hairs on that. And that was exactly the right thing to do. It really humanized me in, at, at that moment. Um, I think one of the, the ways that people can go about this is if there are potential treatments, and we can talk about other things, uh, there is an, sort of an internal crossover experiment that, that you can do. In other words, you put somebody on something, you take them off. If you have two patients, let's say if you're lucky enough to have that, uh, and they both have a similar disorder, you can put one on, take one off, and, and do the reversals. And sometimes, you know, that can be helpful. Uh, but, but we have to really be cautious uh, about doing this. And, and I think Manos is, is a good example uh, because you can go out and buy it on Amazon. You can go get it right now. And there are some parents who say, well, maybe it'll help my kid. Well, we don't advocate that. Because if it's not manos, it could be something else that's easy to get. But if parents take this on by themselves, we're never going to really know. Oh, I think my kid got better on that. Yeah, yeah. And then because there's Facebook pages and Internet and everything else, then the word (laughs) spreads. Is it valid? Is it, you know, again, is it fact? We don't know. So you have to, to try to find... Ways to to both encourage patient participation and at the same time to have some kind of control over it, and it's hard when the parents are desperate. We're, we we and other people struggle with that.
3: Yeah, I, I think I want to come back to that. but We have a question. So, yeah.
4: actually, I have t- two questions. One is very simple. What? Where do you extract mannos from?
1: Um, you can get mannos from. Um, you know ivory, ivory? Not ivory tusk, but ivory nut buttons. You remember when you, you used to get ivory buttons? Those are taken from ivory nuts. And that's the heart of the palm, you know, the very, very hard uh, nut in the palm. So the, if you go into the ancient carbohydrate chemistry books, it tells you which company to go to and pick up shavings uh, from ivory nuts. Of course, you can't digest it. See, that's the problem. You you need to break it down to pure mannose because in the complex form it's not digestible. So there are not a lot of foods out there at all that have mannose. Meat has a little bit, but not very much. So there's not mannose enriched foods that you can take, and even if you can, you can't break them down.
4: The the uh, I, I think I've heard you talk before, and the question that Uh-oh. occurs to me is that there there's sort of a, a sequence of ethical questions associated with research scientists interacting directly with patients and their, their parents. And that is, is, one, the safety issue, which you talked a little bit about, but also the psychological issues of, you know, are you getting false hopes up? Uh, what, what, what might people do as a result of their interactions? Are you, I know, I know you're working with some other scientists, are you beginning to get a, some rough guidelines of what would be the way to approach this uh, general issue?
1: So what we've done over the years, that's a really good question and a, a really important one. Uh, so I had to take um, uh, interaction with human subjects training, uh, You know, not being a physician, not having anything formal. But the first thing that we do if a family contacts us is say, introduce me to your doc. We don't go outside of the medical profession to do this. That would be wrong. And I always tell people whether uh, it's in a conversation or in an email, you know, I'm not a a doctor. I didn't even play one on TV. And and so I make sure that, and, and I then say I cannot legally give medical advice. Now, what I know about the disease from a research standpoint is the following. But if we're going to t- have any further conversation, your doc needs to be involved in this. So that's absolutely critical. So, you know, that may be the first outreach, but the story doesn't stop there.
3: That's actually a pretty neat, um, simple thing to do that I fear may not typically happen. I don't know. I think most people, if they're doing basic research, would never have thought of that. So if a patient calls them up and says you might have something that could help me they're going to start engaging in a conversation and never think to say stop right there let's get bring your doctor into the loop yeah that's um, that's good advice we need we need to start setting up a website with a series of guidelines and that should be the first one
1: and, I, I think that yeah I, yes because this this scenario is going to get repeated you, you know your labs only click away and all that uh, but I, but I think that's really important to do, and uh, we we do need some guidelines. And that fortunately, I interact with uh, a lot of physicians, and so I'm I'm always, uh, if I get outside of doing something, you know, I'd be pulled back. But usually, we're we're in in sync in all these, and 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 we have to be very careful not to offer false hopes, because I've had ten-second story. I've had experience with companies who have taken some of our work and said, "Boy, do we have a cure for you? Have you got autism? You got alcoholism? You got Down syndrome? Take our stuff." It, uh, it was bad news. Well, you said that's a
3: 10-second issue, but it's not. It's actually much bigger than. That. I mean, we, I mean, reflect on this. I mean, what can we as scientists do? When that happens, how does I mean the same thing is happening in much bigger on a much bigger scale with stem cells? I mean, people are yes. in San Diego offering for thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars sometimes stem cell treatments for anything, when in fact the studies haven't been done to show that would work yet.
1: And how is the public supposed to know? Yeah.
3: So so, any, so we're asking you what what do you what can you do? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so put me on the hot seat, huh? um, I can tell you what what we did in in this case, if that's a helpful example. So there was uh, this company who uh, realized that most people don't know much about glycobiology, figured it was a place they could easily go, exploit it, and nobody would notice. And they did, even though their product, which is indigestible um, larch bark, um, and they say on the label... That this is not meant to to uh, diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. You know that's exactly what needs to be said, and they, they put that on the bottle, and then you go to their uh, to their marketing people, and it's a, a multi-level marketing, and they'll go. But if you could see the results I've seen with my own eyes of people taking, you know, I mean it's that sort of thing, and so ABC News 2020 went undercover uh, on this to to to, to spot. Uh, what was going on. Uh, we were, a colleague and I were, were on, on that program. And um, so they were eventually sued and told that they couldn't do this anymore. And I think you may know who I'm talking about. And they have uh, presumably at this point uh, not done that sort of thing anymore. But they have had very, very, very prominent spokespeople who have advocated for them. And uh, eventually, because they, in the earlier days, asked for uh, cited Nobel Prize winners as evidence of the importance of glycobiology, which was true, but not, had nothing to do with their product. And so those, uh, it was um, um, Paul Grignard and, uh, um, oh gosh, the guy that almost drowned me when I was swimming with him. Um, it, anyway, so they they had Elliot Spitzer go after the company and say, "You stop saying these things because that's not right." And eventually, that you know that was tamped down. But I think we have to be aware that all this can always come up. And uh, there's another sugar uh, called N-acetyl glucosamine, which is different than glucosamine that may actually have some therapeutic value. And there are clinical trials that are being done in, in various kinds of disorders. Uh, but again, that information can be taken and run with and and misappropriated. And, and I think a situation I just actually went through today um, where my colleague and I who wrote a story on this and were on the ABC News 2020 episode, uh, you know, we had to Stand up again and say that it was important that we draw a bright line for what scientists will support and not support, and that it is our responsibility to do this if we know about it. And we can't shirk it. And so we've taken that on strongly.
3: Thank you. That's a good point. Thank you, Anne.
5: Well, You've made my brain go because some of us are old enough that we've seen transitions. Um, I did my research at what was then Scripps Clinic and Research Foundation. Now it's Scripps Research Foundation, if anybody's here from there. And at the time that we were doing basic research, we did have an interface with, with clinicians and with patients. And it was an interesting time, and I think it was more open. I'm making some comments, and then I would like you to respond Um, as some of us as biologists end up doing to get money, we become drug pushers. And I ended up working as a detail person for a pharmaceutical company back in the 70s when it was, uh, at least for the company I worked for, still valued to have a biology background as opposed to now having a marketing background. And when you were mentioning about some of the, quote, products, Now, I think one of the loopholes is that some of, I would assume, like Monos, for example, would be under nutritional supplements and would not be considered a prescription drug. So it's under a whole different category in the FDA. So I'd like you to comment a little bit, being a, a socialist myself, and seeing how I'm dismayed, perhaps, you brought up Venter, how we are now emphasizing so much that we can patent uh, materials and patent procedures and patent products, uh, whereas at least, again, when I was in research, the emphasis was more on we're trying to discover knowledge that can be applied medically but it wasn't for our own at least direct financial gain. Maybe indirectly to get a grant, yes, but not directly because we could patent something and benefit from it. So therefore, I felt, and I would like to see your opinion, that sometimes there isn't sharing of information. So I wondered about your work because you're working with rare diseases, and they're worldwide. I mean, you even used an example in Germany, Munich, do you, what are your gut feelings about how this information not only is discovered, but how is it shared? And where do we go from there?
1: I love these questions because they're all about my last two or three days at work. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm serious. They, they, they really are. Uh, and to me, that's one of the issues. Now, going back, we all have to stay for a biologist and scientist. We have to stay alive. And we do that by getting grants. We get grants because we're the first that came up with this discovery. Being second place, uh, you know, uh, is not quite as good. And it used to be that if you were second place in finding something, but you were, you were good, you were solid, you had good ideas, you were going someplace with it, you could still get your grant, still keep your job. Well, you know what? That's changed. The NIH funding level, it used to be at the 25th percentile which means that 25% of the grants would get funded. It's more like, depending upon exactly what part of the NIH you're in, 12%, 13%. So all these ideas are thrown away, and the reason is because we don't have enough money. And, and I think that's, that's also back, back then. Uh, I mean, I, I was in graduate school in the 70s, and so, so I, I remember the atmosphere at the time was not you know, was not one of let's, let's see what we can get. In fact, uh, the thought of that was, was really foreign. As discoveries have been made and money could be made out of it and you could go to international markets, then things began to change. Remember, drug companies used to just screen for a better antibiotic And that was a lot of uh, the effort. Well, it's not true anymore. So the breakthroughs in technology also um, broke you into a world where there was opportunity. And some people are more uh, profit-oriented than others. But you have to have a profit incentive. If you don't have that incentive, then nobody is going to take the risk. So how much profit do you need? Okay, that, that's a whole separate issue. The, the idea of sharing information. Um, I know we're working on, let's say, about 10 patients who have a certain disorder. And we're hearing about, in Europe, there's another group of patients over there, but we're not told about it. We're not involved in that. Some of the mutations in one of the genes, uh, we only found out because somebody published a paper, a review, and they happened to have access to that information and my position is wait a minute we got to share this stuff I mean who's this about this is about the kids and the families that have these problems all right right, we'll, we'll figure out some way I'll discover something one day and I'll ask you if you've got patience you discover something you ask me if I have patience you know it's that sort of thing that's the kind of attitude that we need to have out there and if we have that it's gonna be better for everybody there's enough to go around there's plenty of rare diseases we need to get out there and we need to share that, that, that kind of information because it's for the benefit of, of the people that in the long run they pay our salaries. They're voters and taxpayers.
3: I think I might just add a little bit to that because it's a really important point that I've had a chance to see um, the shift that I think you're talking about because I teach graduate students and postdocs and I remember when I was first teaching in the early 1990s to the late 1990s, the students seemed to be more interested in how does one do a statistical test or how do you um, properly design an experiment. And In the 2000s, the conversation often started out with, so where do we learn about patents and licensing and intellectual property? and I quite frankly had not spent much time and still don't learning about that because I never thought that was part of what we want to do. Now as bad as that sounds, I think I have something positive to say, which is that when I ask students now, why did you go into science? It's almost never because I want to make a lot of money. It's because I want to understand this disease. I want to be able to help understand the world better. That's not to say that everybody is going to be like that, but I think that there is a good deal of that. And what's tempered this on the other side is what you raised, that a company, though, does have to find a way to make a profit. Ultimately, somebody's not going to go with this far enough to make a profit, unless they can make a profit. Yes?
0: Hi, Steve. (laughs) Hi. I'm Steve Grossman from the rare disease group ADCY5.org. and I'd like to circle back around to the stem cell issue. Uh, I think you, you talked about it in terms of treatments and therapies. Um, could you explain in layman's terms for us on how stem cells can be used in research and drug discovery and some of the exciting things that you can do with them?
1: Well, I'm not a, a stem
0: cell expert.
1: Um, but there is great opportunity with, with stem cells. And I think one of the ways to be able to look at this, uh, you know, and you don't have to get into should you use embryonic stem cells. Uh, you don't have to go that route you, because now you have the availability of cells that can be taken from each of us or from a patient that has a problem, and they can be skin cells can be converted into other kinds of cells. That was worth the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, and you can use those cells, and let's say there's a deficiency in in the neurons. So now you can test drugs on those specific kinds of neurons. Now, it's not here yet. This is not routine. This is still an awful lot of work. But there is that opportunity where you can use a relevant cell type that may be uh, advantageous to show you effects. And of course, that's a cell. It's not the, the individual. But... As, as systems are getting more and more complex, you can see that you're, you're able to use these cells to give you guidance. And certainly at our institute, uh, there is a marvelous program going on in looking at screening of uh, multiple drugs, even in cells uh, within a small plate that can fire like a neuron. So I mean, it's very, very interesting. So the idea is they'll have uh, several hundred thousand compounds and it's, it's a crapshoot. So you look for those things that will give you an activity, give you something that you can say, this is relevant to the disease. And if we pursue that, and if we improve on that and make a better molecule, then we have a chance of trying to fight this disease. And so that's one of the real hopes with stem cells. There are other uh, ways that uh, you can do bone marrow transplants for certain disorders. And that can be very effective. Um, that, that's a limited number of disorders. And the reason that that can work is that there are enough stem cells and what that means is they're totipotent. Totally they can become this, they can become that, and they can become anything. And if they get to the right place, if they're in the right environment and they get the right nutrients and signals, then they can become a cell like that. That, that will fill in perhaps for uh, an injured cell. So that's great. But that's not uh, for all disorders. And, um, and I want to I wanna compliment you and Gay, um, your wife, for just extraordinary activism for rare disorders. Uh, Lily, it's yes.
0: not why I'm up here asking a question
1: <laughs> <laughs> Lily, your daughter, is, is pretty amazing Their daughter, Lily, has written two books Gone to the White House uh, She gets
0: around Thanks, and I, I think the important point you made is uh, We actually have a stem cell project going on And we get asked, are they embryonic stem cells? And a lot of people aren't familiar with the types of stem cells You can take from blood or skin and create these organ cells So, thanks yeah, thanks for your time.
3: Yeah, it, and I, I like that question a lot because it, it also is an opportunity to be very clear. I think a lot of people, when they think about stem cells and heard about largely the hype that came with it <coughs> when, when California passed the Stem Cell Initiative for funding this research, there was this vision of being able to take this stem cell and inject it in somebody, and then whatever problem they had, that stem cell would go to the right area of the body and fix it. And there is no evidence, um, I can actually check with some of the audience, am I correct about that, David? There is no evidence yet that there is anything you can do that for. What you can do is what HUD described as something very different, is using those stem cells as a way to study mechanisms that might allow you to have drugs to treat. Perhaps you can find some mechanism that you could work on. And there is, before all of this, a lot of work that's been done with blood marrow, blood and um, blood cells that are stem cells, but they aren't cells that can become any cell of the body. They can become cells of the blood, and that's something that people have had a fair bit of success with. So different categories. But if you see somebody advertising that they're going to inject you with stem cells and cure autism and Alzheimer's and diabetes and old age.
1: Run, Forrest, run. Uh, yes. <laughs>
3: lock up your Lock up your checkbook. Just get away from it. Yeah. Because um, it's not ready yet. Um, yes.
2: It's not a science question, but I hope it's an ethics question. In the last two or three months, I read something in the paper about, I think, one of these rare diseases and uh, there was a child who, and there was a drug that if he could get, he would be cured, but if not, he was going to die, I think, before he was three or four. But the drug was, I think, $165,000 a pop. So sort of my question is, you have potentially thousands of these rare diseases. And if you find the cure, but it's, what are we going to do, sort of ethically, and or economically, or whatever it is? Uh, you can't let three year olds die because the family doesn't have a million dollars or whatever it costs to. Uh, uh, is that a sensible question?
3: Nice simple question. Yes.
1: <laughs> and I wish I had a simple answer, and I and I don't. And of course, uh, you know, to be to be fair about this. Uh, the FDA appropriately requires a lot of evidence that you're you're not given larch bark to patients. So I've I've seen it from that other side, and there's been talk, as recently as today in the paper, about lowering the standards, if you will, of the FDA to make it easier to get drugs through. Well, but at what cost? Okay, and you might say, well, you can cut out eight years of research and uh, give the drug. Well, I think at some aspect that becomes like uh, giving snake oil. And so where is that balance? Do we need to make improvements, find more efficient ways to do things, maybe have the FDA perhaps be somewhat less risk-adverse? I don't know. I mean, those things have to get worked out and I think there's there 's a big incentive now to do it, and I think people who are going to to think about drug pricing, reasonable profits, places of generics, all of these things are going to be part of the mix but there's there 's no doubt i mean I know what it takes to, to run a, a small lab, a tiny lab, and if you 're going to do clinical trials to really show something works, and sometimes they 'll get Two-thirds of the way there, it's called a phase two trial, and things are looking pretty good, and then suddenly it falls apart. So all of the, the animal work, all of the basic research that went into making that drug now disappears, but you had to pay for it. So how do you recoup those costs? And maybe that's what you're seeing with, with this, this kind of pricing. So there has to be a reckoning, and I think there's got to be a change at some point And it's probably going to be adjustments on many different fronts. Mike, do you have a save me here, Mike?
3: (laughs) Well, I I can't save any of us, but I can provide some observations. And one is that whether it's for a rare disorder or for something that's very common, the, the reason we don't already have treatments that are safe and effective and cheap is because these are really hard questions. Biology is really complex. Most of what's done now, getting into clinical trials, has gone through really tortuous paths, a long time, a lot of work, and most of it still fails. And the reason is not because people were stupid up front. The reason is that we are now working at the edges of the hardest remaining questions about human biology. Translate that now to rare disorders where you can't have hundreds of thousands of patients you might test something in It leads to uh, one of the questions that somebody wrote down is, do we need an FDA for rare disorders? And so what I think they're proposing is, do we need a different approach to thinking about this? How do you decide when you're going to try something that you can't do all of those clinical trials with, that you don't know if it's safe and effective, and, and who gets to decide? If it's a child, it's the parents get to decide. And what do we do?
1: There, there are these things called right-to-try laws. And, uh, you know, basically it says that if you are cognizant of, of the risk and you want to try a particular thing, and I don't know how far along in, in the process it has to be, but you would be allowed to do that. And I'm sure there are restrictions about if you do that, you can't sue them for, you know, malpractice because, you know, you, we're all taking a shot on this. So um, I think it's, it, 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 it's one of those, those things where we're not going to be able to know everything right away. There needs to be a conversation that does involve patients, that does involve what they're looking for. And at the same time, know where those limits are. So a lot of this is really about uh, informed conversation, open transparency, where people are honest about their motives. I mean, you know, that's where I said uh, in, in the beginning, uh, you know, we try to deal only with facts. We're always probing. It's never done. We've got to go back and do it again because you get new information. and Now you have a different slant on it. So I think that's the kind of conversations that we have to to have. And as scientists, you know, we have to to be able to say what we know is limited. And I think that there is, in general, a failure of scientists to go out and uh, in some ways be humble. And to say, look, you know, this is a work in progress we're doing the best we can we're not out trying to line our own pockets you know we do this cuz our hearts in it we we love the we we love the thrill of discovery but but also know that if we say something we're trying to get it right and there's lots of ways we're all trying to probe and we'll give you the best answer we can and we'll give it to you as honestly as we can but we know that there are limitations to what we can say. So I think if scientists in general are, are like that and open with the public, I think that is going to go a long way because there is, uh, especially these days, of um, alternative facts, of the elite versus the, the rest of, of the, the country, there, there's a real chance that scientists could be uh, taken into, oh, you guys think you're so smart, don't you? You got all the answers. You went to college, didn't you? Oh, that's you know, I mean, I think we have to contend with that. And we have to be able to go out and somehow get past that barrier because to say, look, we all get sick. I got a sister who's disabled. You got an uncle that, that, that died of that strange disease. You know, we're all trying to figure this out. And we're not so far apart. We just have to lower those barriers. And I think having conversations, just like this, just like talking about these things today, I think that's a start. Uh, we got some bridging to do, but I think that's the obligation of scientists as well.
3: Yeah, it, by the way, that, re, that reminds me, and maybe this is quite relevant here, because a lot of us do throw around the phrase alternative facts, which we heard recently, and we throw it around actually a little bit <clears throat> glibly. Um, I, you know, for better or worse, it sounds like what was really being said is that, um, that facts, there are a variety of facts. and It's not that you've got one answer and nothing else counts. There's a lot of information that might be relevant. In the case that we're talking about, there's a lot of things that are relevant to this, which include that if parents have a child that's suffering with something that nobody knows what they can do about it, and that child is suffering as well, and they may not live long, then for them, if the scientists say, we don't have an answer yet, then what's wrong with them going to somebody who says, we've got these sugars that might help? What's wrong with them going to somebody who says, we've got these stem cells that will help? And it's not that that person is stupid. It's not that they are evil in any way, trying to do something terrible to their child. They're doing something out of caring. So how do we bring, and I think this is what you were talking about, how do we bring that common denominator of caring about that individual, together so we, we can shape the conversation not by saying, you must be stupid to go to these people, but instead saying, here is why you shouldn't, and here is what we have to offer.
1: Yeah, I, don't yeah I mean, I, I think the first thing we have to do is have empathy. I, mean, I think that's, that's the beginning of it, to know that... Uh, Many, many people in this situation are desperate. I and mean, I remember when when we, uh, my sister was maybe a year, year and a half old, something like this, uh, lived on the eastern edge of Indiana. We drove to Chicago to see a, which was probably a neurologist is my guess. I was too young to actually remember. And went to this physician's house. And she looked at my sister did a few things and said, there is no place for this child. There's no place. I can, t- I can tell you, we drove back to the other side of Indiana. And nobody spoke. That was, you know, you're on your own. You're, you're there by yourself. You, you know, I can't help you. Take care of it yourself. Things have gotten better. I mean, there, there, there are education programs, there are opportunities, but still a lot of people will f- feel this, this kind of isolation. And so first, we do have to have the, the empathy and the understanding that people in a, in a situation like this are looking for some answers. And if we can't give it to them, they're going to look for alternative ones. So we have to be ready to have a conversation where... We talk about what we know, what we don't know. Those things that may be able to provide some hope. Sometimes uh, it may even be, if you will, going to your uh, congressperson. Scott Peters, I know, is very supportive of of research. Has done a marvelous job here. We found uh, one family who came to us. uh, They had been looking for a number of years for uh, what was wrong with their child nothing came along. There was one clue. It had been misdiagnosed very often. One clue. And then that person, that doctor wasn't sure and came to us because we had experience in things that were related to this disorder. And we met the family. And it resulted in the, uh, the New Yorker writing an article called One of a Kind. One of a Kind. And that family, I mean they are magnificent i mean their iqs of 880 or something like this you know and well organized so dad is a blogger and he was able to get the story out there get 2 million hits on his blog and write this story that was that was published in the new yorker and now we know of 50 patients because of their efforts and somebody read the blog about the unusual characteristics of their child And this is a German family that is living in India. And they wrote to the mom, and they said, this looks like our Benno. Do you think Benno could have this disease? So they contacted me right away. I said, send the cells over. We'll look. Benno had that disease. Um, Amazing to diagnose that way over the Internet. Lognosis parentis, or whatever you, you would call that. But it was, it was just amazing. And, and so now, many of the patients that you saw in that big family picture were with that disorder. And the dad got a lot of notoriety out of that. He was there at the rollout of the Precision Medicine Initiative at the White House. And for the last uh, six or seven months, he uh, worked in the White House, for the Precision Medicine Initiative and would meet with the president a few times a month. So to, you know that just shows you the opportunities and, and what can happen when, when parents take on these kinds of, of, of issues and looking for hope, and they're still pushing forward. Where are we going to end up with this? I don't know, but I can tell you there's going, to be, there's going to be impacts on many other diseases just because of understanding that. And is there hope? We have hope. Our research is working on that. Other people's research is working on that to try to find an understanding of how this thing is working. We thought we sort of understood it. But it turns out as we were doing the experiments, we don't understand it the way we thought we did. Research, money. Money more research maybe we'll get somewhere but there is there is that that faith and that hope that we can find something because research is the last frontier but we have to be realistic about it and they have a nice parents network where they pull together people who really begin to get it and when we have those opportunities we tell them that too so i want to
3: wrap up by, first of all, thanking you for a really interesting perspective on science and how it's done. And um, hopefully everybody has a much better appreciation than they did when they walked in the door about rare disorders and that we are making some progress, but we have a way to go. So I want to thank you for that.
0: Thanks, Mike.